0: everyone you're listening to the talent revolution where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different not better is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams to help you do this i go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters employer brand experts and people leaders making a huge difference to their organizations i'm your host tom hackwell and in today's episode i'll be speaking with ken oliver ken's the executive director of checker.org he's a paralegal and former state policy director who was convicted of joyriding and spent almost 24 years in prison more than eight of those years in solitary confinement. Since his release in 2019, he's dedicated his life to serve and leadership, fighting discrimination against those who suffer from criminal convictions as they attempt to rebuild their lives and reintegrate back into the community with safe and dignified housing, meaningful employment, and access to economic mobility. I'm going to stop for a minute before we get started and and just say there's no way my introduction can really do Ken's background justice. There's a great piece about him on Reuters called From Prisoner to Philanthropist, The Remarkable Journey of Ken Oliver, And I'd encourage you all to go take a look at that. We'll link to that in the show notes. But let's get going. Ken, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me,
1: Tom. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: No sweat. Look, I think we briefly kind of touched on your background, and obviously there's lots and knots to cover here. I think it'd be amazing just to hear you kind of talk us through those sort of early years in your life and your journey to date, if you can walk us through that. Well, I definitely
1: don't want to bore your audience. I mean, my story is a young African-American male growing up in South Central LA is Almost a cliche, um, if anybody's seen the movie, Boys in the Hood, uh, that was my life. From a very young age, I found myself hanging out in the streets. And by the time I was 15 years old, I was doing time in the California Youth Authority for getting into mischief and all sorts of trouble. Didn't have a lot of direction. By the time I was 24 years old, as a result of stuff I was doing in the streets at a young age, I found myself convicted of a third crime, uh, a non-serious, non-violent crime, joyriding, basically being a passenger in a stolen vehicle. And I was given a life sentence right around the time when California enacted a law called the Three Strikes Law, which gave anyone convicted of any type of crime, stealing a pack of cigarettes or anything, shoplifting, life in prison. And so that's kind of how I ended up getting life in prison. And I was 28 years old. I think I was turning 29 when I got that life sentence. And for all intents and purposes, I thought my life was over when they gave me 52 years to life.
0: Yeah, sorry, I'm just pausing because it's just harrowing, right? I'm 30, so like I can't imagine an environment today where I'd be facing that life sentence, and I don't know how I would deal with those circumstances or that situation. I think we can't really do that that situation justice, but like keen to kind of dig into what happened during that time in prison, right? Obviously you're out of prison now and we'll come to that and you're doing some incredible things. What shaped your perspective whilst you were in prison and what went on between you being incarcerated at 29 and you being eventually released a considerable length of time later?
1: I appreciate that, Tom. I think for me, when I heard the judge hit the gavel and sentenced me to 52 years of life, obviously I was shocked, I was numb. But one of the things I did at that moment really, is I refused two things. A, I refused to believe that I would serve life in prison or die in prison. And two, I refused to believe that I deserve to spend life in prison. And so one of the ways that I reconciled those beliefs versus what the judge had for me was I spent a lot of time reading books. I spent a lot of time educating myself and keeping myself abreast with what I thought was happening in the community. read a lot of business magazines, entrepreneurship magazines, I kept up with tech, really immersed myself in philosophy. I read some of the most famous authors that ever existed, you know, Frederick Nietzsche, Tolstoy, Malcolm X, you name it, I read it. And really just attempted to validate my own mental worth in an environment where I was constantly met with a barrage of people attempting to convince me in one form or another that I had no worth at all. And so there was this constant warfare going on with my existence. And the only way that I found salvation was through having conversations with some of those intellectual people that wrote some of those pieces that I was sharing with you. And then about 10 years into my prison sentence, as a result of that reading that I continuously did, um, I was placed in solitary confinement for reading a book about the Black Panthers. And not only was I placed in solitary confinement, I was placed in solitary confinement indefinitely. Now the basis that the state gave for placing me in solitary confinement was that they felt that I was reading so many politically charged books, that I was reading so many different things about philosophy and politics and all of that, that I I became a threat to the Department of Corrections here in California. And it was ironic because for me, You know, I was thinking, you know, I'm just sitting here in my cell reading books every day, educating myself, writing papers, et cetera. And yet the state saw fit to place me in a prison underneath the prison. And from the moment that they put handcuffs on me and took me to solitary, the first thing that really struck me, Tom, was that this is what happened to my ancestors, is that when we were brought over here in slave ships and put on plantations, that there were actually laws against African-American folks reading and educating themselves. There were consequences that resulted in beatings and death for reading the Bible and attempting to educate themselves. And so what struck me about that is that I understood why the plantation owners and the slave masters didn't want slaves to educate themselves, because they didn't want slaves to understand that they weren't supposed to be slaves. They didn't want them to understand that they actually had worth as a human being. And here I was in prison, and the prison administrators were trying to place me in a prison underneath the prison for just reading about my own history, to reading about the political um, uh, landscape of the world. And so I felt very similar that because I was trying to reach that intellectual capacity and, and stimulate that, that I was being harmed because I possibly represented a threat. And in fact, that's what prison officials told me, is that they thought that I was a threat to um, the prison system. and so. They placed me in solitary confinement indefinitely. And then what I decided to do was I decided to double down on the reading. But this time I turned my reading to the law because I didn't understand how in the year, I think it was 2007 at the time, that I was being placed in solitary confinement indefinitely for reading a a piece of political literature that you could buy on Amazon books today. I wanted to understand, is this what the First Amendment to the Constitution was about? Is this what the 14th Amendment to the due process clause was about in America? And so I just voraciously started reading every single case that ever came out from the United States Supreme Court. I read most individual state Supreme Court cases, probably read over easily a thousand cases when I was in solitary, trying to unpack and unwind the law that allowed what was happening to me to happen. And After doing a lot of that, I filed a civil rights lawsuit against the state of California and the Department of Corrections and federal court. And then with the help of Stanford University who stepped in to help me and a law firm by the name of Mayor Brown, which is a big corporate law firm, they stepped in and helped me execute the lawsuit against the state and the state capitulated rightfully so and settled the case and admitted wrongdoing and admitted that I had no wrongdoing. they paid me a settlement and ultimately let me out of prison
0: as a result. I'm going to respond slowly just whilst I digest all the things you're saying, right? But like, there's lots to cover and I want to get on to what we're here to talk about today, which is this notion of fair chance hiring and your perspective on that and how your experience has, has played into the work you're doing today. I just want to pause before we move on though and just understand a bit more about, I think what we'll collectively call like resilience, right? So what I'm hearing is you found yourself in these circumstances in prison i've been reading everything i can about fair chance hiring recently and all of the statistics and that the numbers are just scary right Forty eight thousand different laws making it difficult for incarcerated people upon release to get into the world of work and things like that it just feels like suppression right it feels like life is being made difficult and that there's these barriers and these walls being put up and it feels like you being put in your words in the prison inside the prison Is just like another layer of that suppression. It's another pushback, right? It's another, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, how do you double down at that point? How is it and and what is it about you that means you can suffer these circumstances but harness that energy for good and go study a thousand legal cases and not react in the way others might? What happened there? What is it about you? Is it some special source? How does that work?
1: No, not hardly. I think that, I think every human being, when you when you wake up every day, there's two things that we all have. I think we have a chance and I think we have a choice. And I think for me, and this to be perfectly honest with you probably stems from my childhood, it was a refusal to believe others' perspectives on what I should be. And so in various form in various ways during my own trajectory in life, I've been told a lot of different things about myself that I knew weren't true or that I felt that weren't true. And I think that when you have someone who doesn't know you sit across from you and tell you that your life isn't worth living and then attempts to assassinate you, like physically place you in a place where you'll never live again, I think for me, it was a form of resistance. I think when I went to prison and wanted to educate myself and find a safe place for my from my mental stability, and then have prison officials who don't know me at all, again attempt to place me in a place, meant to suppress me, to use your words. I think it was resistance that caused me to be resilient. So I refused to believe others' definition of me, and I wanted to define myself, and I have always wanted to define myself in my life for myself, in whatever way you know, whatever judgment may come from that. I'm fine with that, but. I've never set well with people defining me for me. And I wanted to make my own decisions about myself. And so when those opportunities came up where I had the opportunity to define myself or when most of the opportunities were taken from me, let's reframe it. And there was an opportunity for me to have just a sliver of definition for myself, like in solitary confinement, where there was nothing else for me. I was in a six by nine cell sleeping on a concrete slab And the only clothes I was allowed to have was a t-shirt and a pair of boxers and a pair of socks. I think finding that small sliver of self in the law, right? because that's the only thing they couldn't take from me, they couldn't stop me from reading the law, gave me a piece of freedom to define myself. And law was just the vehicle that took me there. And so that's where I've always found my sense of resilience is finding those small slivers of spaces where I can define myself for myself And that's what's driven me, to be honest with you, in my life and it's driven me in my work today, Um, just trying to define myself on my own terms. And that's kind of what got me through it, to be honest with you.
0: I wanna say it makes sense, but it sort of simplifies the severity of the issue. And and I like, thank you, right? Like I I think having that glimmer of hope and that resistance is the reason I get to have this conversation and learn these lessons from you today. And equally, some of the great work that you're doing on fair chance hiring and promoting awareness of that is hopefully gonna solve these problems. In some small way longer term right and so like i appreciate you taking the time to talk us through this and being so open and transparent and sharing your story i think we've got to you being released right what happens then what have you been doing since you've been released you know as you've entered the world of work again and started to do things
1: sure so i was released to the bay area in oakland california and within the first month that i came home i got a job as a paralegal at a public interest law firm and they gave me a chance to work on criminal justice reform from a paralegal perspective. I worked under a couple attorneys. And then about two months into that job, they thought that the company thought that I had a knack for policy, policy reform. And so they made me the state policy director and sent me off to Sacramento, California, where our state capital is and our policymakers and really had me working on a lot of criminal justice reform, things like voting rights for people on parole and child uh, support reform and uh, fines and fees, economic justice, et cetera. And I really enjoyed that because it gave me the chance to advocate for other people. Even though I had been released, I could advocate to make change. And and that's something i was very passionate about. And then after I did that for about a year, a friend of mine who I was in prison with was given clemency by Governor Newsom. And when he got out, he called me up and we had dinner and we started talking about things that we could do you know, how we could serve the community, what type of businesses we could open together and, and make an impact. And he convinced me to join him to build an organization uh, called CROP. And there were a team of us, five of us total. And we decided that we were gonna build what we called at the time, the Stanford of Reentry Programs. And it was gonna be high touch, you know, high support, high expectation, high quality. And we were gonna create an environment that allowed people who were formerly incarcerated to come in and perform at a high level, get educated at a high level, and then enter society at a high level with high-end work, which is the purpose of this conversation. And because we were in, in, in the Bay Area, we chose for that for the sector that we chose to infiltrate, if you will, was tech, right? So we, we said, okay, we're gonna train justice-involved people to be involved in the tech sector because that's where most of the economic mobility exists. We live in a technology-based economy and and things are gonna continue to go on that trajectory. And so we wanted to get people away from this notion that the only thing you could do was pick up a wheelbarrow and you know lug some cement across a plot of land or put on a orange vest and pick up trash on the side of the freeway. That if you did the work, if you accepted personal responsibility for the outcomes that you had in your life, that you could achieve anything. And if you believe that, if you took on that mindset that we were gonna build the bridges to help you get there. And so uh, that's what we set out to do. And, uh, you know, we built a lot of partnerships and built a, a program design that convinced the California legislature and the governor to give us almost $30 million to build out the first residential tech-centered reentry program in the country, which is a huge honor because the five of us, none of us had been out of prison two years and we all serve life in prison. And for a state government to believe in us and our vision and have the foresight to understand that people with lived experience who've experienced the pain points of a problem probably are the ones that should provide the voice and the solutions and leadership. It took a lot of heart for a state government to do. It took a lot of foresight and took a lot of brass to, go against the normal grain and say, hey, I'm gonna give this to somebody who just came out of an Ivy League college who thought that they read something in a book and, and had an answer to people who've actually lived it and we believe in these guys to come up with some solutions for us. So that's what we did. And I was very blessed and honored to be able to participate in that. And then as soon as we got that off the ground, Checker contacted me about an opportunity that they had to build out a foundation that focused on fair chance hiring. It was interesting because On the one hand, I just got this big, huge contract from the state to build out this huge program. And then on the heels of that, here comes this tech company, a $5 billion tech company who says, we've dedicated our mission, our company mission, to fair chance hiring. 6% of our workforce is people that have been formerly incarcerated. And what we want to do is we want to nationalize this movement and normalize fair chance hiring with corporate America. And so there was an opportunity to play at a much bigger level. Imagine if you're on your high school football team and somebody from the NFL comes up and says, hey, we want you to come impact the NFL in in this way, right? It was one of those opportunities that um, I couldn't pass up to impact tens of thousands of uh, people who have been impacted by the justice system and get them in a pathway to economic mobility.
0: That's incredible. I think Checker are a partner of ours for listeners. We love working with Checker. We think their mission is phenomenal and, and fantastic that we get the chance to talk to Ken and start actually contributing to some of these challenges that Ken's articulating. I think you've used this term fair chance hiring a lot and we're going to spend a bit of time now digging into a what that is, b how organizations can sort of adopt these practices and see hopefully that the difference that will make. I think but before we do that we talked a bit about your experience but I think often and again I've learned a lot having read a lot of this stuff recently I think oftentimes the severity of the issue for justice-involved people exiting the prison system and kind of finding their way into the water where it isn't as understood as it could be, right? Like this is costing tens of billions of dollars a year. This is excluding a huge percentage of the working population from an opportunity. There's more people with a criminal record than before. Like, Can you kind of give us a sense of the, set, of the size and scale of the problem that Fair Chance Hiring is designed to address? Sure,
1: so I guess, for people to get context on on how big a problem this is in the United States, I guess the first thing we should look at is the numbers, the sure magnitude of how many people this affects. So there's approximately, I think 350 million people in America. 70 million of those people have some form of a criminal record, either a felony, a misdemeanor, an arrest record that stop them from accessing a lot of the social services a lot of work, a lot of housing, a lot of things that we need on a daily basis to survive in this country. And in fact, those 70 million people face 48,000 different laws that exist, ordinances and laws that exist that prohibit those 70 million people from accessing work, livable wage work, affordable housing, or as I mentioned, other social services that, that people rely on to live on a regular basis. And so when you think about The so what of that, right? There's, I think, almost 90 billion in GDP that's lost as a result of denying people access. We're creating and have created a second-class citizenry that occurs in this country, which means you have one tier of citizens that access all of the normal things that we have access to in a middle-class economy. And then you have this lower tier of people that can't access the same thing. And what that does is that contributes to the mass incarceration problem, because if you're not giving people access to livable wage jobs and you're not giving them access to housing, then people typically will reach for things that there are laws against, right? They'll play the corners and they'll play the margin to attempt to access those things. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about fair chance hiring. We're talking about just access to work. It's really a no-brainer, Tom. I mean, it's not something that we as a society should really be spending a lot of time talking about, because this this country was built upon work and the ability to work. And if you're taking away the opportunity for people to work, then I'm not for sure, and I haven't heard an answer yet of any policymaker that says what we expect grown men and women to do in this country if they're not provided access to work. In addition to that, there's the issue, just the the moral issue of redemption and the issue of providing people opportunities to rebuild their lives and move on from a mistake or a poor choice that they made. And I'll give you an example. When I talk to people, I love using the sports analogy because I'm a big sports fan. You know, when we look at professional sports, which entertains us all, we all love some form of entertainment. And we look at even in the music industry or movie industry, we see celebrities who do crazy stuff, right? They break laws, they harm spouses, they do all different types of stuff, you know. And in most cases, those people are given second and third and fourth and fifth. Chances to come back and, and redeem themselves, and you know when I look at why a billionaire who has everything to lose takes a chance on a guy to come back on a team when he's had got kicked off two or three other teams, he's had problems with substance abuses, other different types of problems. When I think about why they give that person another chance, it's usually because of the value that's perceived and what that person can bring to the team or the industry or you know whatever. And so I think that we have to apply some of that same thinking to the formerly incarcerated community and look at people as human beings and provide them an opportunity if they can provide value, provide them an opportunity to step up and move on you know, with their lives and, 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 and obtain a level of wage to work so they can take care of their families and become contributing members to the community. Otherwise, you're just creating a society of exiles. And when you create a society of exile, you, you usually create a society of people that are going to play the margins and commit crimes and do other different types of things that stem from
0: poverty very easy to understand analogy. And as I say, like, I think you're right, there's almost nothing to discuss here, right? There's not really a legitimate argument in support of this, well, I'm going to call it discrimination against this population of people, right? How can organizations that agree with everything that you just said, actually make some progress here, right? Like we talk about fair chance, right? What does that mean in practice? How do organizations frame that? How do organizations get in front of these people? And what should they be thinking about when they're doing that?
1: sure it's a great question well i think the first thing is that people have to have an internal conversation with themselves and reconcile what we just spoke about about do people who may have committed a crime right because many of these people have criminal records were in fact exonerated some people haven't even been found i mean some people's cases have been reversed and they don't have a crime that they've committed but they still have the criminal record i think the first thing we have to reconcile is do people deserve or should they have a second chance to rebuild their lives And that's, you know, I've met very few people that say a person shouldn't be given a chance to rebuild their life and move on. And then once we come to that conclusion, like the next question is, well, what can we do to ensure that that happens for folks? Because it's not a zero sum game. It's actually a win win for both sides. It's a win win for community. It's a win win for business. And it's a win win for the person if they're given the opportunity. And so if I'm a business leader, you know, one of the things I have to do is I have to make the decision that this is something that I want to do and not operate in the mythology of, oh, if I hire a person, they're going to rob the place blind at night, or they're going to do some other type of destructive thing, because the data and the statistics actually don't bear that out at all, right? The data and the statistics show that when you give a person who's been marginalized or been part of the criminal justice system an opportunity, especially when it's a opportunity at livable wage and something that they see value in, they're actually the most loyal employees. They'll actually suffer the least attrition. They have the most promotion rate. Right, They get raises more than anybody else at a higher clip. Once a person makes that decision, then the hard work begins. Once you've made that philosophical decision that you're gonna open up the workplace to, um, for all people, not just justice impacted people, but all people and, and be fair in the workplace. Then you have to go and you have to build relationships with community-based organizations or you contact organizations like Checker or Dave's Killer Bread Foundation or the dozens of other organizations that are out there that actually teach HR departments and companies how to do fair chance hiring. It's not really rocket science, it's just building in additional mechanisms in place and understanding how to identify and read background checks and apply the background check to a particular job function. So for example, the EEOC in the United States, they have a a formula where it's called nature time, nature test, where you take the nature of the crime versus how long it's been since the crime was committed, and then you apply that to the nature of the job. So, for example, if somebody got into a DUI accident and you know harmed somebody and served seven years in prison, is that applicable to somebody who wants to be a financial bank teller? No, the background check probably doesn't add up because having a DUI doesn't have really anything to do with a financial transaction. So we, you really have to go in and, and learn, and there are organizations, including ours, that teach organizations how to do this how to evaluate the data. And then it's okay, this person actually isn't a risk to my business, which is the case most of the time. Most of the time, a person is not a risk to your business. I can point to 5,000 success stories for every one incident that occurs. And and it's actually a lot lesser incidences than normal people who have never been convicted of a crime at all, Um, as far as staff, as far as incidents that occur at the workplace, et cetera. So first is the will, Tom, the will and the desire. And then it's just a matter of going through the practical application of learning how to do fair chance hiring, partnering with the right organizations to be able to make that accessible. And then also being very, very specific about the type of talent that you want. We're not asking for employers to give people jobs because people are formerly incarcerated. What we're saying is best person for the job. And if the best person for the job happens to have a criminal conviction, Let's take the best person for the job, despite the fact that they had some type of mistake that they occurred that happened in the past and do that thoughtfully and do that consciously.
0: Look, it all resonates. I think, let's say that I'm an organization and I've listened to everything you said. I'm really keen on learning more about Fetch chance hiring, and we'll talk a bit in a bit about where they can go find more information or more resources out there and how they can learn some of those best practices and we've got plenty of resources to throw their way from your team what i'm interested in is what do people not understand about the perspective of of somebody going through this these motions kind of coming out of prison and looking at entering the world of work for the first time you know again having read a lot of your resources recently there's lots of really interesting talk around you know the anxiety that these folks may suffer from in terms of entering the world of work and thinking about shift patterns and managing check in with parole and thinking about exclusionary language and job descriptions and sort of not putting their foot forward for those roles and things like that like what are some of these things that people just don't understand about the way people think about this going through this process
1: wow we could probably do a whole show just on that right i think tom um, what people need to understand first is that having a criminal conviction on your record is like carrying around a scarlet letter if our listeners could just imagine for a minute the time when they told a lie in their life right even if it was a small white lie imagine if every conversation you ever had to have it was always prefaced with the fact that you were a liar. Make it pretty difficult to get through life. It, it would carry a lot of shame and everything else. And so I think understanding that people who have been convicted of a crime or have a criminal record carry around daily as part of their existence a lot of shame for that error and that mistake. That's punishment enough for anybody for a lifetime. And so when they see job descriptions that, that aren't inclusive, when they run into HR managers who aren't empathetic to situational circumstances that occur in life and come off as very judgmental those things are terrifying for people who've been formerly incarcerated i've seen women like run out of rooms crying because you know they passed a bad check 20 years ago and you know did a year in the county jail and and, and we're trying to apply for a job and you know the person was very judgmental so i think understanding the challenges and the barriers and the barriers are vast for People who've been formerly incarcerated—they're vast when it comes to people applying to get housing, where people don't have a safe place to live. They're vast in filling out a job application. I mean, California just now in 2018 passed the Fair Chance Act, which prohibits employers from placing whether a person's been convicted of a, a crime on a job application, and it prohibits employers from even asking the question or doing a background check until after they've been given a, a conditional offer of employment. Those things and done some things to mitigate some of the fears but they haven't changed the outcomes in reality because there's another trauma that occurs when a person goes through a job interview and they're qualified and the person offers them the job and then they do the background check afterwards they've got offered the job and now this big huge disappointment happens when the person calls oh yeah by the way i offered you the job last week and i know you probably stopped your life and we're preparing for this but now i gotta resend the job offer because you have a something that came up on your record 20 years ago, right? So there's a lot of trauma associated with trying to navigate society when you have this scarlet letter. And and, and I want to, if I can just back up a little bit, Tom, I want to just be clear about setting the context for where this mindset developed from, because I think it's important if you want to change something, you have to understand the source. And this, the source of of this like civil death, if you will, is a holdover from King's England a thousand years ago where if you committed a crime, you were, in the books, civilly dead. You couldn't marry, you couldn't do anything. And in America, we've adopted a lot of that, and we still hold on to a lot of that, that we almost declare people civilly dead in many cases, for the right to vote, for the right to do this, for the right to do that. And if we believe in redemption, if we believe that people deserve another opportunity, which I think that most people do, then we have to get away from that perspective We have to get away from saying that because you did something when you were 19 or you were 22 or you were 24 or whatever the case was, that you don't have a right to rebuild your life and move on and become a contributing member to society. Because that only exacerbates the problem when you do that in America. So I think exercising in empathy and providing space for people to rebuild, to regroup, and to show what they're made of. Is key if we're going to make a dent in mass incarceration in the United States and really change the rates of recidivism that have plagued this society for the last 50 years.
0: You've spent some time there talking about a whole range of things, right? But I want to focus in on the word trauma and I want to focus in on the experience you talk about there with job offers being rescinded and the concern around that background check and having that scarlet letter of that criminal record for life. Can you talk a bit about what you're doing at Checker.org or the Checker Foundation to sort of Try and stymie some of those problems, and and try and address that issue head on.
1: So one of the reasons I'm at Checker, Tom, and I'm really excited about being at Checker is the fact that Checker and its company of 900 people has dedicated its corporate mission to fair chance hiring, and and what that means is is that Checker is perpetually curious about how to solve the problem of fairness in the workplace as an HR solutions company. And they're really intentional about trying to scale fair chance hiring, not only across the country itself within their own company, but also as a leader of a movement in corporate America to normalize fair chance hiring. Because as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, it affects such a broad variety of the workforce that's imperative with this talent shortage that's currently occurring in America and with the great resignation that we look for alternative sources of talent to be able to source our workforce. And there's no legitimate reason about why, when you have that many willing workers in this country, that we should be excluding large swaths of the population that way. So Checker, one of the things that we're doing is we're spending a lot of time focusing on skill development for formerly incarcerated people. The prison system in this country does an abysmal job at actually providing marketable skill sets for people. We know that Black and Brown people specifically have not always been included in the technology-based and knowledge-based economy. So we're doing all different types of things in reference to certification programs and education programs to give people the skills necessary to compete when it comes to the knowledge-based economy. We are also working with employers all across this country to train them and teach them how to do fair chance hiring, teaching them about the metrics, teaching them about the stakeholders, teaching them about the culture that they have to build within their company to be able to make this a normalized practice. And we're also spending time in the policy and advocacy space where we're working with policymakers to be able to create incentives for employers, whether it's salary share agreements, tax incentives, et cetera, budgetary resources that help support training programs, et cetera, to really help keep the ball rolling and the traction rolling with getting these people back to work and providing them economic mobility. The reason that's important, Tom, is because at the end of the day, we have to sit and ask ourselves what is the number one cause of mass incarceration. Why are people going to prison in such droves? And what was driving all of this? And the data shows that the number one driver of incarceration is poverty. Data shows on the other side that the number one thing that alleviates poverty is education and work. And so it's not really rocket science. It's really just a matter of the will. And I'm blessed to be part of a company who not only to be in a great tech company in the HR space. They're also dedicated to such a, a social justice mission as providing a fair future of work for all workers.
0: It's a very articulate way to describe the horrendous vicious circle that seems to kind of perpetuate, right? Look, I think we've learned a lot here. So a few things to, as we start to wrap up, right? One, where is the best place to go to start learning about this stuff? If, if I'm an organization and I want to start Fair Chance Hiring now and properly, where do I start?
1: Well, there's a lot of resources. You can go to the EEOC. They have a great resource. You can go to Sherm. They have a great resource about Fair Chance Hiring. Checker has the Fair Chance Playbook, which you can go on our website or you can contact me at the checker.org foundation. We have a whole playbook and kit that we can talk to you about, about how to do Fair Chance Hiring Program. We're one of the leading companies in the tech space. There's Dave's Killer Bread Foundation, which has the number one organic bread in this country. They have a great Fair Chance um, curriculum program that they teach. The Second Chance Business Coalition, which is Verizon, Walmart, JP Morgan, all of these companies have dedicated themselves to Fair Chance. Educate yourself or have your HR teams educate themselves and create a program, right? Talk to others who have done it, see what the pitfalls are, do your SWOT analysis, figure it out, and then join with others, community-based organizations, other companies, to onboard and implement these types of programs and they pay off in spades they pay off for your bottom line there's a great business case there's a great book called untapped talent that jeffrey korzenica an investment banker wrote last year that really makes a great great business case for untapped talent fair chance talent in this country so yeah you can also email me right i'm more than glad to speak to any company in the country i speak to companies every week about how to do fair chance hiring programs and i'm more than glad to help
0: Amazing. Thank you. And we're going to put links to all of the stuff that Ken just talked about in the show notes for convenience for people. And then I think last question, aside from fair chance hiring, right, aside from going and doing and reading and consuming and engaging with everything that you just talked about and making all of the changes to the way that the organizations recruit and the process and their mindset and that internal education, if an organization really cares about this mission and they want to help do something about it beyond their own fair chance hiring, what can they be doing?
1: Well, the number one thing they could do is invest in talent development by providing resources, either a volunteer with the organization staff, providing money to organizations that do fair chance hiring, training for folks and really developing the talent, giving to community-based organizations in your local area who deal with re-entry and deal with criminal justice reform and recidivism. Those are all great starting points that a company can do. On an individual basis, I would say the same thing, giving donations to companies that are investing in skilling up people who've been just as involved in giving them opportunity into the workforce in a meaningful way. Uh, those are the best ways.
0: Amazing. Look, Ken, thank you for everything that you're doing and thank you for finding the time to talk to me today. I appreciate your busy. Nothing else to say other than that, that was incredible. It was educational and I've enjoyed speaking to you and no doubt we'll speak to you again.
1: I appreciate your time. I'm grateful for you having me and uh, anytime you want me back, I'm
0: more than glad to come back. Thanks very much. I think everybody else, for more great tales from the trenches and best practice people guidance, please stay tuned to The Talent Revolution. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.